0: Well, good morning. Uh, welcome. I'm, my name is Eric, and I'm one of the elders here at City Light South. It's a joy to be with you all. Um, I am a professor at the university. I'm on East Campus, have been for the last nine years. 31 years before that, I was a teacher uh, in the public schools here in Lincoln. And I have a class that I teach on uh, Tuesday, Thursdays to 20 future teachers. And I'm teaching them, really, uh, methods of teaching. And Tuesday, believe it or not, was the topic was questioning as an instructional strategy. So how do we use questions? And when I started class, one of the students had a, had a t-shirt that said, Jesus trained on it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I said, so I'm standing up in front of him. I said, so you got to tell me about that t-shirt. What does that mean? And, and he said, well, it's all about Jesus. I said, Oh well, cool. I said, D- are you aware that Jesus used 305 questions in the Gospels? And I had more kids kind of look around like, what a random fact that this guy just threw out. Uh, but I thought it was fun because it led into Really, why do we use questions as, as a teacher? And why did Jesus use questions? And there's really four uh, things I'd mention. One is that we use questions to gain people's interest and attention. So we, we try to question people, and, and the relationship I have with them can impact the questions I ask them. I ask questions to find out if we have a common language. Um, and you'll see in like, even in Matthew 16, at the first part of it, Jesus used the leaven of the Pharisees and, and Sadducees and used some terms that the disciples didn't understand. And so it really clarified, and of course, Jesus knew that anyway, right? But it clarified his response back to them. Um, so we use it to get a common language. We use questions to move from the known to the unknown. So we use questions to find out, well, what do you actually know? And then I can, I, as a teacher, move you into the unknown. And Jesus does that. He's the master teacher. And then the last one, we use questions, obviously, to get people to think. You'll learn so much more if you learn it into your own understanding than if I tell you what I think the answer is. And that's a reality of teaching. And so we're going to get into Matthew 16 and look at what is Jesus really teaching? And he uses four questions in there that I think are powerful. One of those questions is the essential question of the Bible, in my opinion. All right. But I'm going to break it into two lessons. Okay. The first lesson really is Jesus alive or dead. The legit lesson. And that goes from verse 13 to 23. And then from 24 to the end, the question is, does that impact what I do? Alright, so that's my second lesson. Alright, so the objective, the the point of this is, I want to answer that question, who do I say Jesus is? Alright, so let's get in and find out what the answer might be. So, let me read 13 to 16, and I'm in the New American Standard, which is of course the right version, but you know, if you have a different one, that's okay. Um, It starts, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He began asking his disciples, saying, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? There's question one. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. And he said to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? There's question two. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So there's two of the 305 questions. (laughs) So uh, the first question is really focused on this um, idea of who do you say the Son of Man is? That phrase comes from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel, he has a vision of the Son of Man, the Messiah, coming and to reign in His kingdom. I mean, that's this vision. So Jesus is using that phrase, phraseology, if you will, in that question. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And I think it's an interesting answer the disciples give. They say, well, he's John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets, right? All of which were used of God, but all of which are no longer with us and dead. So the people in that area viewed Jesus as a, a, a prophet that is not active and alive. And then he asks the disciples, so who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's the speak before I think person um, answers and jumps out and says, well, you are the Christ, the Messiah, that translates mean Messiah, the son of the living God. So there's the contrast as he begins to teach his lesson, right? Are you in a relationship with a living God or a prophet that's no longer with us? And so in 17, he begins to teach. And he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now that's interesting because, so God revealed to Peter the answer to the question. The answer to the question, Who do you say Jesus is? And that came then from God revealing it to Peter. Um, And then he says to Peter, Upon this rock... I will build my church. So uh, I, I looked up the, the Greek of uh, the term rock and it's bedrock. That particular term means a foundational rock. It's the rock on which castles are built. It's the, it's the rock that would represent like the foundation of our home. Okay. Then he uses this rock. All right. So this is defining the foundation. I think it could be two things. One, it could be the apostles, Peter as one of them, they're the foundation of the first century church. I mean, that makes sense. But they're also dead and no longer with us. So could the answer be to this, that this is actually that God reveals to us, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the foundation upon which he builds his church. Church there, the term means called out ones. It's not a building. It's a people. It's a people that believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay? And so, um, then the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Hades or hell is where the dead are. And again, just a, a real clear comparison between the contrast of dead and our relationship is with either a dead or gone prophet or a living God. And. Then he says in 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I thought, so are there a bunch of keys? Um, so I, I looked up that term keys in the Greek, and it actually translates singular, a key. Uh, well, that's why didn't they just do that? Why, why wouldn't you just say, Jesus will give you the key to the king? Well, he says keys. I think that's interesting. It's used two places. It's used here in, in Luke and keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so I thought, well, I have four keys to my house, but they're all the same key. I have two keys to my truck. They're both the same key. So could it be Jesus is talking about, He's the key. He's, he, you know, he says, I will give you the key. I think the key is Jesus. But why does He use keys to the kingdom of heaven? Uh, okay, well, what, what, is a what are some of those? So I, I went to John 3.3, 3. and in there he says that, he's talking to Nicodemus, and he says, you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. That same phrase. I thought, well, that's obviously a key. So I'm born again. Well, later in John 3, in one eighteen he talks about, but you, you must believe. It's faith in Jesus Oh okay so being born again and faith that's the same key but there are two different things that Jesus is sharing in Romans 10:9 he says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is the lord and believe in your heart now I'm acting upon that faith I'm inviting him in I'm truly believing it that's the same key so those are three separate keys but it's all Jesus I thought one other key is is forgiveness Right? Forgiveness only comes through Jesus. It's no one else that forgives us for our sin. I thought, well, Psalm 32.5 is a great verse. It says, I acknowledge my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. It says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. So that's David, who is a convicted, right, uh, adulterer and murderer, I mean convicted by God and he felt bound and tied up because of his sin and that says he's he's loosed he's he's unbound and forgiven right what is he's lost he no longer has the guilt of his sin what a great key to the kingdom of heaven we're forgiven and he's been loosed if you will, he's been let go of his bondage. And first 1 John 1:9 1, says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that makes sense as I look at verse 19. And I think what is this loosed and bound, and, and how that's in Jesus. And it's one of the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then he says to his disciples he says, now don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. I thought, well, that makes sense. I mean, they're not ready, and the timing's not right, and you need to wait. All right? Now, in the same lesson of, is he alive or dead? Jesus continues in 21 to 23. And he says, and from that time, Christ Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. This is amazing. And how does it word in New American Standard? God forbid it, Lord. <laughs> now that's an interesting statement from me to Jesus. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. I thought, what a contrast in Peter, right? He's blessed earlier because he, he shares what God revealed to him. And now he's Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Because why? Because he's focused on his own interests and not God's. And I thought, well, how often do I do that? I mean... It's like minute by minute, you know. It's a, I can I can be really in God's interest in the morning and in the afternoon. Holy cow! I'm all off looking after my own interest. So what is God's interest? You know, I think of in First Timothy two four, God's desires for all to come to Him. God's interested in each and every one of us. God's interested that we interact with the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. Now, what if he didn't raise from the dead? And I think in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 starts where Paul, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, shares what the gospel is, right? That Jesus should die and be raised on the third day. And then he shares that 500 or more people have witnessed it and, and talked about it and shared it. And, and it's, it's a proven fact. And then, but then he goes down later, but but what if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? And then he, he just says, well, our faith is in vain. We Death has won. You know, we're, we're all dead and doomed to Hades, if you will. And that's not shared in that chapter, but I think, again, it's this contrast between a relationship with a living God and or, do I answer it with it's a prophet that's dead and gone. And so, you know, I think that brings, that brings it to the end of that first lesson. So he's asking us, who do you say Jesus is? Do we answer that? He's the, my Messiah. He's the son of a living God. And in such, I, have a, I want a relationship with him. And I think that's lesson one. And then we move into his second lesson. I think that starts in twenty four. And there's two questions in this section that, again, refer back to that essential question, who do you say Jesus is? And in 24, he says, then he said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take him his cross daily and follow me. So what does this look like to follow a living Savior? A Messiah that has died and is risen from the dead. What does that look like? Well, if anyone wishes to do that, he says, let him deny himself. Deny myself. What does that look like? Grace, if your mom asks you to obey, what is she asking you to do? To obey her, right? To do what she asks. You're denying what you want to do and you're obeying your mom, right? That's denying yourself. And I think, well, as an adult, I'm asked to do the same thing by Jesus, right? And one that comes to mind is taxes. (laughs) Do, Do I claim everything that I should claim? And for me, that is, do I deny myself Because Jesus is asking me to be honest with myself when I'm by myself. You know, I know whether I've been honest and reported what I'm supposed to, right? And it's kind of the same thing. Do I deny myself and obey what Jesus is asking me to do? Like Grace is going to obey her mother because she's denying herself and obeying her mom. Right? It's, it's very similar. So then it goes on. Well, what else should I be doing? I should take up my cross. What does that mean? Um, and I think, well, what does that represent? What did Jesus do for us on the cross? He died for me. He loves me enough to do that. Do I love others as Jesus loves me? Do I put myself um, you know, in a position to serve and love others? Do I do that because of what Jesus has done for me? And maybe in the middle of that, I might share the hope that I have because Jesus died for me. So I take up my cross, and then it says, and follow me. So follow me is a relationship. I have a relationship with Jesus to know what He wants me to do, and then I want to do that. I follow Him. I take on some of his characteristics, kind of like I'm taking on some of my wife's and she's taking on some of mine because we're together so much, right? In that relationship. So take up your cross daily. Daily is not in this version, but it is in Luke. And I think to me, that's that tension between what do I do each and every minute of each and every day as I live my life in a relationship with a living God? Well, then in 25 and 26, it kind of gets to the, to the why we do what we do. Okay, so uh, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. What? Whoever wishes to save his physical life will lose his spiritual life. But whoever loves his, his spiritual life for my sake will save it. Or is it, but whoever loses his physical life for my sake will save it. I think that's it. So I have a choice. What do I live for? And so why do I do what I do? And in verse 26, it says, For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? My soul life, my spiritual life. Well, what does that look like? And in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, it talks about living for the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Right? That to me is what I'm living for if I think I'm going to be profited here in this world. and But in doing so, I lose my spiritual life. And then I think of that last question. Now that's, one, that's the second or third question. And the fourth question is right after it. Or who will a man or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So what can I give for my spiritual life? Well Ephesians 2 8, 9 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's nothing I can do. Right? It's all of what he's done. And so I can't exchange anything for it. I have to have faith in it and believe in it and live in that relationship with a loving God who is alive for me. Then it says in 27 that it impacts, or I will be judged by my deeds. So it's got to impact what I do. And then it says in verse 28, which is really a confusing one, says... Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming to His kingdom, into His kingdom, right? I focus on the word some. Some are in, some are out, right? Some are in the kingdom, some will not taste death, that could be referring to the transfiguration and three disciples saw Jesus in His glory and the rest of them didn't. I don't know. I'm not sure what that, what that could mean, but I know what it does say is that some will be there, some will not. Okay? That takes me to Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many of those are in a body. So there's two ways to the kingdom of God. There's this wide path that leads to destruction. And there's narrow path that leads to life in the kingdom of God with Jesus. There are two paths. Some are on that path. Some are on the narrow path. Okay. And then in Matthew 7:24, I love the way it starts. Because it starts with, He who hears these words of mine and acts upon them. An interesting way he starts talking in the end of his Sermon on the Mount. He who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a house that's built upon the bedrock. There's that same word again. So the foundation of Jesus is for those who hear these words and act upon them. And then they weather the storm, etc. And then the verses go on to say, well, if you don't, Those storms are tough. So my question then is, so what does this look like for me to live in a relationship with the living God? And I think I'm going to think of three things. All right. The first one is I have a hunger for the word. right. A hunger for the word. Well, what does that look like? I think, you know, when we became Christians 40-some years ago, um, we were with a bunch of people that at the same time we were saying, well, let's read through the Bible. Let's read through the Bible. We, We haven't done that. And so we were committed to read through the Bible, just like a number of you at City Light South are doing that. We're reading through the Bible, trying to do it in a year. I don't think I've ever done it in a year, but I've continually tried to read through the Bible. So I'm currently in Micah, and I'm reading through the Bible. Right? But Micah for me has been kind of dry. I'll be honest. And so I'm reading about the Old Testament and some things that are happening and the way that Jesus is being, uh, his kingdom is, is, is coming. And so what have I done lately? And this is within the last seven years or so. I've been taking while I'm reading through the Bible and focusing on one section of scripture. So these last six weeks, it's been Matthew 16. I've just been sitting in Matthew 16, reading it, looking up the Greek word for that, and the Greek word for that, and the next day, I might have another question, and that keys came into play, the question on keys, where did, does that mean multiple keys? And, and so, uh, it has really, it really developed in me a hunger for the word. I'm already thinking, well, what am I going to be doing uh, tomorrow, since I'm out of Matthew 16, after this, this sermon? And, and I'm thinking, well, Wow, it's really increased a a hunger for the Word for me. So I encourage you to really seek the Scripture, but it's a hunger for the Word. I think that's one change. That's what it looks like to live in this active relationship with Jesus. I think the second one is that I have a hatred of sin. Right? What does that look like? And for me, that's been a, a powerful journey. Um, I don't think it ends. I think sometimes I thought, well, the older I get then, as a believer before long, then I won't have to deal with sin, right? Because I'm so wise and and profound or whatever. But the reality is, the older I get, the more I see my sin. (laughs) And so it was a number of years ago, I I was reading in Galatians 5, and I had spent weeks, months actually, just reading it every day. So I was reading in the Old Testament, and I was reading Galatians 5. And in Galatians 5, I memorized 5.16. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Well, as I was reading through that, he really paints, here are the desires of the flesh. And four of those were outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. And I thought, there's my sin. How do I deal with my sin, and it, it changed my life, because I no longer looked at my wife or my children and said, it's your sin you're making me mad. No, that's my sin. My anger is my sin, and it helped me really work through the fact that I'm a sinful person blaming others for my sin. So we have to have a hatred of sin. All right, and the, the third one is that we have to have a love for others. And I think of our, our efforts to, uh, to be at the table with, with others, right? We're, we're trying to do that as a church. And what does that look like to be at the table with others? And I think, you know what it's not? It's not me giving somebody two points in a poem and telling them how they need to live their life. That is not what loving others looks like. Loving others is, I think, sharing with them how Jesus is changing me, how He's working on my heart, how I am in love with a living God who is in a relationship with me, and I share that. You know, I don't need to share, you know, what others need to be doing. In the same way in my my marriage, I don't need to be making applications for my wife so that she becomes more like Jesus the way I think she should. Right? So I need to have a love for others. So that brings us to, okay, so who do you say Jesus is? And in summary, I want us to really answer that question. He is the Christ, the son of the living God, and I'm in a personal relationship with him. Let us pray. Jesus, I just, I thank you for the fact that we have the opportunity to be in a relationship with you. Lord, that you love us as we are, as sinners, and we fall so far short. I just thank you that, that Lord, you continue to draw us closer. And I pray that we would truly, Lord, have a hunger for the word. That we'd answer the question, why does it matter? by saying, because I'm in a living relationship with a loving Father and a Son who died for me and rose from the dead because He loved me that much. Lord, would that be reflected in the relationship that we have with Him? In Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are now going to share communion together and it's a great time to just reflect on what is my answer to that question? Who do I say Jesus is? You know, did he die and raise again for me personally? Is it a relationship that I have? And so we're going to come together and have you come down and grab the bread, which represents his body, and dip it in the juice, which represents his blood. But as you think about it, how is your relationship with our living Father. And then I'll come back and we'll read in 1 Corinthians 11 and, and take the bread uh, and have that meal together, if you will. So, um, yeah, ponder that question, and then we'll be coming to take the bread and the wine. Thank you.